Hello, welcome to 360 Yourself, the podcast show centered around self-awareness and improvement. I'm Jamie Neal, host of 360 Yourself. So, a little bit of information of how the podcast came about. In 2014, I had a breakdown and was hospitalized. Too much work, too much anxiety, too much coffee, and not enough self-care. In the hospital, lying there with my thoughts, I had to rethink my entire way of life. The doctor said I was overworked and my body just gave up. Now, I'm not gonna say it wasn't scary, but it was a bit of a turning point for me. From there, I started to rebuild myself, reading hundreds of self-help books and questioning everything from, why do we have triggers? Why do we have egos? What is manifesting and what is identity? Many years later, someone recommended that I start a podcast because I've always been interested about how others lead their lives. And thus, 360 Yourself was born, interviewing incredible minds about how they understand themselves and how they utilize their knowledge and awareness to set out into their space. 360 Yourself is a dedicated podcast meeting brilliant and curious minds and looking at the world around them. I speak to artists, musicians, sports athletes, authors, CEOs, and experts in human behaviors, released every Sunday at 12 p.m. I ask questions about their mindset, journey, values, and ethos to fully understand how each of their minds work. How can we become more of ourselves to grow to the ultimate person we know we can be? If you do enjoy the episodes that you're listening to, please visit our Instagram page at 360 underscore yourself to let us know what you like and how you're learning. Or you can email us jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. That's jamie at 360yourself.co.uk. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. Good, good, good. We're now actually recording. You were, you were going, you were going on about saying uh, how your background and stuff. So I was like, we need to record because I, well, I always generally do. I get too excited um, about the guest, and then I go off on a tangent. I'm like, I need to ask questions about what you're doing and how you can inform my listeners. And then I go, oh yeah, we should really be recording this. And it generally always happens. Um, but first of all, I want to say thank you so much for coming on 360 Yourself. It's been, it's really like an honor because obviously you're one of the leading people in your field. Um, but also we would talk about um, your uh, recent uh, holiday in, in Scotland. Um, but I want to go into basically um what you actually do because i was saying we've had some amazing guests on the show that are behavioral therapists or sleep doctors uh, actors uh, marketers etc but we haven't really had people talking about science and what's actually happening on this earth um so i'd really love to go into it a bit more so tell me your background and where how you got to where you are now so uh, I'm a physicist by training. That means when I did my undergraduate degree, um, I studied physics and astrophysics at Leicester University. And um, back in the 1990s was the early days of Earth observation. And that's uh, turning satellites round to look at Earth rather than the stars. And we use more or less the same techniques to look at Earth as, as, as we used to use to look at space. And so uh, what I'd learned in my degree and, and PhD um, set me in good stead to do that. And the space agencies now, NASA and the European Space Agency, who I work for mostly, spend more of their budgets, in fact, today looking at Earth than space, which probably uh, people are not aware of. It used to be very much the other way around. So, and so we look my... at Earth for lots of different reasons, right? Not just to study the climate. But you got you got some people like... Uh, Jeff Bezos and and SpaceX etc. Looking outwards, and then obviously you're looking 
at the earth and what's actually happening here. So I find that really interesting how there's different, what made you want to look at potentially what's happening here rather than where we're going next? So I think um, the opportunity was definitely a big factor, right? The, the, uh, the, the ability to study earth, learn things about the planet that we didn't know uh, using satellite technology was uh, really attractive. And when I set out, there was a big environmental problem. It was the ozone layer. And that was a big deal for society in the 1990s. And it was something that had to be solved. Um, it was global in scale. So you needed measurements that could cover the whole planet. And satellites provided that. And uh, you also needed participation across the planet because the ozone doesn't know national borders. And, and eventually, it starts to affect everyone around the planet. And, and I lived through that period when I did my PhD and it was solved. So it was a really great moment really to be involved in environmental science, which previously was taught in geography departments, not physics departments, not departments of engineering where you're designing satellites and, and, and sensors to, to be used in space. That was all the preserve of interplanetary exploration, which is now, as you say, being taken over by private companies where the national space agencies and international space agencies in the case of ESA are focusing on collecting information that's directly of benefit to people on planet Earth today. Mm. It's there's, I mean, there's so, well, what, okay, my basic question, what do we not know about the Earth? And how much do we not, not know? I mean, we, I mean, Earth has been around for billions and billions of years, right? I mean, there's still things that we didn't know about the ancient Egyptians and how they did their use their, use their technology. But what what actually do we not know? How much do we not know about the Earth? So that that question um, can be answered differently today than it could have been ten years ago, and even twenty years ago as well. It would have been very different as well. So twenty years ago, we actually didn't have any good evidence that Earth's climate was changing. We just did not at all. So if you look back to the first IPCC reports that were written in the mid-1990s. Um, the, the only evidence for climate uh, changing was, was from sensors on the ground. And uh, there was lots of um, question marks as to whether they were truly representative of what's happening everywhere on the planet, because we don't have many of those tide gauges and things like that. And we started to get satellite measurements, which showed, for example, retreat of sea ice in the Arctic Ocean. And they provided the first concrete evidence that the climate was changing. And then we got some more measurements about ice shelves that are fringing Antarctica that were breaking up. And we learned from the geological record that, that they'd been around for 10,000 10, years. And so the, the, the climate was changing abruptly in a way that it hasn't done in the present glacial period. So we've learned all of these things in the past 20 or so years, thanks to satellites. But we don't still don't know everything, right? There are things that we, we don't have the answer to really because we can't measure some things from space. So we can't measure what's beneath the ice sheets. We can't see uh, through three kilometers of ice in Antarctica and Greenland. And um, in the cryosphere in particular, we can't, we can't easily measure the ice, the sea ice that's floating in the um, Southern Ocean around Antarctica. That's one of the biggest challenges that we face today. And, and studying mountain glaciers, there are 200,000 mountain glaciers on Earth that number is on the increase because as as they melt, they divide into two. Yeah. And so we have more of them. And so we, we, we can't tell you what's happening on every glacier on planet Earth today. Interesting. So 
what what do you think might be and what 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 is your theories think that is underneath it and why do we need to know what's underneath them so underneath antarctica um we've learned uh that, that the ice um isn't um static and frozen to the land beneath it uh, thanks to people who've studied uh, subglacial lakes and so we know these lakes exist beneath antarctica the most famous one is lake bostock mm-hmm. um and we saw um, its signature early on, thanks to satellite measurements, again, because the ice above it was really flat and it was just mirroring the flat lake surface below it. So it's a 600 square kilometer lake. It's pretty big. And um, you can only see how flat the surface is thanks to satellite measurements. If you were there on the ground, and indeed the, the, the Soviet um, Vostok station was on the ice sheet above Lake Vostok before people knew the lake was there. And that's, that's what it was na- named after. So we now know. There are these bodies of water beneath Antarctica, but it's proven really hard to drill into them. And, and it's a really, from a general scientist and public interest perspective, these are really um, adventurous locations because the water that's in them could be millions of years old. Oh, and wow. So NASA, okay. Na- NASA is interested in particular, and ESA are interested to explore them because it gives us, it would give us a capability to explore similar environments out in the solar system, right? So on Europa or some of the other frozen moons. And um, and also it would give us an opportunity to, to, to sample pristine environments from millions of years ago, which would be really interesting in the context of Earth's history. So that, so basically there's there's frozen water, there's live water that's that's floating around underneath the ice caps that they're gonna well they want to explore, which then would give you more information on other planets that have similar climates. Yeah, it would give us information on um, what was alive in on on Earth um, several million years ago, for instance, when these lakes were first formed. Yeah, yeah. It would give us the capability to to explore these environments without polluting them. Um, and so, the traditional way that we would get into one of these lakes would be to drill straight down. But when you drill through very very deep ice, you have to um, put in fluid to prevent the drill from freezing. And that's usually some sort of hydrocarbon, ethanol or methanol, something that doesn't freeze yeah, yeah. At, at very cold temperatures. And that just would go straight into the lake and cause pollution in the lake immediately. And you wouldn't be able to sample yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the precision needed to detect Catch ancient rain. life forms. Catch rain too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you have to... So the, the design, and I think JPL have got these um, uh, moonshot-type designs to, 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 to build a... A self-propelled um, thermal probe that would bore through the ice, collect a sample, and then make its way back out again, which is mm. exactly the sort of instrument you would need to explore one of the planets in the solar system, right? And so mm-hmm. there's a real crossover between studying the far-flung places on Earth uh, can help us to prepare to study the same far-flung places, but out in the in in, in space. Wow, and 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 obviously there's there's been so many uh, heat waves. I have to obviously bring this up, but there's been so many heat waves happening, especially in the UK. Uh, I mean, I've I've been in Los Angeles, so I've I've missed some of them, but I was hearing um, tarmac melting, right? And so then you think about how odd this is for the climate, and then you think about like global warming and stuff, and I'm like, or climate climate change, and you go, how do people not know or not? notice that this is happening that we actually need to do something about it because this is not normal behavior of the climate especially where we're at way where we are in the london and the uk yeah well i think i think that, i mean there's an old uh, phrase that um 
if someone does a stretch in prison of 10 years, they'll only remember the interesting days and forget about the the, 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 the mundane days. And that's the same with people's uh, recollection of, of weather. Um, it's usually uh, framed by the really hot days that you can recall and the really cold days. So if you ask most people about what the weather was like when they were young, they'll remember sledging down hills in winter when in fact there were probably only one in five years when you could do that in the UK. Yeah. And really, really hot summers when the same would be the case. But because they stick in people's memories, they seem to they, it's easy for them to think that it was always like that when actually it was infrequent. And we've heard a lot this year about 1976, which I lived through. I was born in 72. And, um, and and not many people reflect on the fact that that was 50 years ago almost, right? 40 to 50 years ago. And so an event that happens uh, several times in one year is clearly more anomalous than something that happened uh, than something that would happen once every 50 years. What, what happened in 1976? We just had a heat wave in the UK. Oh, right. Um, okay. It was really isolated. And we had an intense heat wave. It lasted for a couple of weeks. Uh, we also had a drought during the summer um, and the reservoirs dried up and we saw all of the same stories that we're seeing today. But it was really localised just to the UK, whereas the heat wave that we've experienced this year has affected most of Europe, a much, much larger area. Mm. I, I just I just think about I mean, the whole I mean, the whole point of this podcast is to be more self-aware. Right. And I think we 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 look at our own lives so localised and then don't zoom out to look at how massive and how amazing the world is around us like i didn't know this i'm sure you do but i found out that um the earth uh so actually tree is it trees are older than sharks no sorry sharks older than trees because most obviously the earth was covered in water yeah i mean um ancient history um um is is, is an evolving subject area as well, of course, um, in the interpretation of the geological record. But obviously, Earth was once um, in a warm period where there was no ice on it and very little land. And the continental plates were in such a configuration where there was only one land mass as well. And so Earth's um, ocean and land distribution was very, very different to what it is today. And uh, life on Earth started in the oceans, and, and that will have included sharks before... Um, the trees that we know of today, um, in particular, not just not not all vegetation, but the trees that we know of today, um, evolved. They're a they're a, a highly evolved part of the biosphere. Whereas during um, ancient times, the vegetation on land was typically like ferns and things like this, mm. which we still have on the planet today. But it, it, it was lower um, lower grade. Um, um, organisms than the ones that we see in, in typical forests. So trees themselves are uh, quite could quite well be younger than sharks in terms of their existence on the planet. Yeah, I mean, I, I just find it all fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm I question a lot about what's out there in space, and also the idea that space is all and space and is getting larger and larger and larger and larger and endless. And then also like what's actually happening on this earth when you think about animals and you think about what's actually happening to nature, what's happening to the earth itself and how like example i've heard that the the core is if it was just a like even a tiny bit too hot the ozone layer would crumble etc etc but it's it's the right balance in what we actually need i don't know if that's if that's correct or not but i find 
this so fascinating about life and a lot of people are so sometimes so in what they're doing that we don't actually don't look at life like I go for my walk in my na- my nature park, which is probably about five minutes from my house. And I, I honestly always think, who house has walked here in my steps? And how long has these trees been around? And how many people have looked at these trees or gone near these trees or whatever it is? And I'm fascinated by that because then it thinks then you actually take your problems or your issues that you've got at the moment and they sort of just fade away from like how old everything is in the history of, of what you're walking in. Yeah, I mean, the polar regions are really great um, places because of that very thing. You, everywhere you look around you, it, 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 it's incredibly unlikely that anybody has set foot on any of the square patches of land that you might be walking on. It's really, really unlikely. And, and the chances that you, you're going to visit a place on the ice sheets in particular that someone's ever been to, unless you're ret- re- retrieving a piece of science kit that was left there at some time in the past, are really, really remote. And you often feel that same sense of, uh, or actually about the environment around you um, it, when, when, when you're working um, in the cryosphere. But it, to go back to what you said, I mean, the scientific method is all about questioning uh, knowledge and the basis of today's knowledge and, and whether or not um, uh, the correct answer is something different to what people think today. Whatever whatever um, branch of science you operate in, it, it, it's the way that science moves forward by questioning the status yeah. quo. So it's not... It's, it's not an easy concept to sell to members of the general public because it comes across as though that we're uncertain about things, but it, it's not true. It's just that's the way uh, we move forward in, in terms of our knowledge base. We, we continually question things until we, we're absolutely convinced that they're right. And, and climate science is a good example. You know, we, we didn't have enough information um, 25, 20, 15, possibly even 10 years ago to be able to say without any doubt that uh, we were recording uh, a signature of, of climatic change that was driven by global warming. But we know that now. Um, it's unequivocal that the signals that we see around the planet are measured across all of the planet. There aren't pockets of the planet that are getting colder or growing. If you take the cryosphere, for instance, we've now measured every every component of it. That includes the ice on land in Greenland, the ice on land in Antarctica, the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean, the sea ice in the Southern Ocean, the mountain glaciers and ice caps, and the ice shelves around Antarctica, all of them are losing um, mass. They're all shrinking. And so there isn't part of the cryosphere that's growing uh, that people used to wonder about. Um, and, and so we, we're going to move on now from that that conversation and try and push science a little bit further forward so so what's the question now then what's the question that you're asking yourselves now or question that for what is the future yeah i mean the question that we're asking now is um how quickly um, this will change in the future and that this goes back to something else that you said about earth You, you mentioned um that that you'd heard that the core of the planet was was uh at just the right temperature yeah. to sustain the ozone uh, layer. And, and that's, an, that's a, a weird concept, right, because it's so far removed from it. But it, it just reflects the fact that our planet is really finely balanced. And in, yeah. and in fact, it's a, it's a really unique um, part of the universe, um, in fact, certainly the solar system, because uh, we're at the temperature on planet Earth where water can exist and does exist in all three phases at some 
time and space on our planet at the same time. Doesn't that, so doesn't that get... literally blow your mind? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're <laughs> it really finely blows... balanced. So we can have water vapour, we can have liquid water, and we can have ice on our planet at any one time, and but, we do. But then, then, then for me, the pose of the question, how does that happen? Like, why does it happen on this planet and not other planets that we just don't know? Like, that... It, it, it sends me into a, a rabbit hole because I'm like, what did that and who did that and how did it happen? Well, it's just chance, right? Uh, from, a, from an astrophysical perspective, there are, there are um, a finite number of planets, rocky planets orbiting suns around the, the stars, around the solar system, not the solar system, the, the galaxy and the universe um, that are in this Goldilocks zone where water exists in liquid phase but, but in, also in gaseous and frozen state. And, and that's been um, a real bonus for the study of climate science because we see quite clearly it changing from phase. And in, in our case, it's changing from frozen to liquid. And we can see that really quickly. And it becomes one of the first signatures of climate change. And it, in fact, is one of the things that we've documented um, the, the impacts of climate change most clearly in. And to go back to uh, your question, what, what are we looking at now? Uh, the, the problem that bugs us today is how that will play out in the future. The, the pace at which ice is melting on the planet um, isn't steady. It's increasing year on year. In the cases of the polar ice sheets, at least their mm -hmm. uh, melting is accelerating. And um, that, that presents a challenge for models um, of um, the climate system, which we rely upon for predictions of things like sea level rise. And, and that's where we are today is we're trying to narrow down to improve those models, to narrow down their uncertainties so we can provide reliable predictions of sea level rise for the future. And then once you have that, well, once you've answered your question of when it's going to happen and how long it's going to happen, then I'm assuming, well, obviously there's, lots of sort of uh, war especially in america at the moment there's been rules passed to um minimize uh fuel um oil and and and, and solar and solar system solar uh solar panels and etc to help the in the environment and the climate right and so there are people there are certain things happening in in the world at this moment in time but potentially not at the rate it needs to happen so then is your then responsibility is to get those answers as quick as possible to relay that information so then we can do more for the planet is that that kind of the process well i think the the hope for climate science and and i would like to think climate scientists is that we can solve this problem in the same way that the ozone layer was solved and and then Money can be put into, in the case of science, other areas of science, but also into other into other areas of societal good. So maybe dealing with the impacts of climate change. Um, we only need to improve the models until they're reliable. We've we've collected observations, and we now trust that they're reliable. We still have to spend some money to continue to launch new satellites into space when the old ones die, uh, but we don't have to do the research and development to to convince people that this is. Uh, possible anymore because we know it is and once the models are fixed then climate science is more or less solved and we can we can park that and move on to try and solve other scientific problems and 
it's quite hard to think that other science problems are important when you've lived through this period of climate change and global warming has dominated the science agenda for for several decades now. Mm. Uh, but but I'm sure that at some stage in the future it won't uh, because it's essentially a solved problem. So we don't hear, for example, um, about um, improvements to weather forecasting anymore. Um, but it is the case that money is still spent to improve the capacity to forecast weather. If you look at weather forecasts today, they're reliable out to several days, three or four days. Mm. Uh, when 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 I was a, a lad, they were reliable for several hours, right? And so things have changed, but we don't hear about the research and development that, that goes on in the background to improve weather forecasts. And at some stage in the future, the same will be true for climate science. It will be a background issue and the investments will be back into other areas of pure and applied science. Do you, do you think that do you think then this whole climate change and if it will be resolved at some point and then we'll obviously we'll stop using fuel I mean I mean I mean, I'm, I'm an electric car guy I mean I don't know if that's I'm assuming that's better for the environment but I would try to do as, as best I possibly can and I believe people want to do their part for for earth but do you think we'll get to a point in 10 15 years time where like again your money spent on what you're solving will go into other areas and we have, we'll have this problem of global warming i'm sure we will but i don't think we're going to get there through uh, the positive benefits of uh, the capitalist system alone which i think is what um, most western governments have relied upon over the past few decades but it's clear that capitalism won't get us there on its own and and we know now we know we know now that um the i think it's pretty clear across most of the world that the energy markets today are broken right and that the sources of energy um that we depend upon need to be changed uh, because we're too heavily reliant upon um fuel coming from uh, unfriendly or um inhospitable parts of our planet right and we, and we could generate that more reliably from our own natural resources and in the uk in particular we we don't need to be using uh, energy uh, that's drilled uh, other parts of the planet and and so i think um the, uh, the the energy production companies are not going to switch because it's easier for them to try and try and just um hold on to their uh, infrastructure and drive up prices but of course yeah that's not gonna, that's not going to they're not they're not switching at any pace to renewable end sources of energy because it's not in their best in, yeah because not, it's, it's not, not in their best interest that's why it's not in their interests but but actually they're going to hit a problem because people can no longer afford to pay for energy and and that's their problem that they haven't factored into their business model so, energy so then, then what, what will happen expensive. at that what will happen at that point then there'll have to be state intervention and so somebody will have to set up an alternative provision of energy because these energy companies are just not doing it so there'll be state intervention for sure in, in, in the short term, but possibly even longer term, to limit profits and to reduce people's bills. And that, that becomes a nationalised system, essentially. I mean, yeah. I heard on the radio today, somebody from the energy production companies, it was on, it was on the BBC, actually, uh, Radio 5, and um, uh, they were arguing that the only way to bring price, uh, uh, prices down uh, was through competition, when actually exactly the opposite is the case we have competition in the uk 
Um, the energy produ produced in the UK is largely produced by French and German nationalized industries. Mm -hmm. and, and they are driving up prices in the UK, where in France and Germany, um, prices have held where they have that, those nationalized companies are obliged um, to maintain uh, price caps. And is that, is that the, do you think it's that this, the way the UK is set up or why, why do you think that's happening in Europe and it's different over here? Oh, well, because we, we, we uh, privatized all of our utility companies in, uh. in the 1990s and sold them off. What will happen, we also privatized, privatized the, rain, uh, the rail industry. Yeah. And there have been examples of the state of state having to come back and intervene because the service wasn't provided. Well, We've seen the same yeah. recently, right? Aviva have decided to stop sending trains to Manchester. That's that's no a crazy way. situation. Really? And we, can't, we, and we can't sustain that. So the state will have to intervene and our current government will claim that this isn't nationalization, but it's de facto nationalization because it's interfering with the private sector. It's interesting. I, my friend lives in Gothenburg and uh, something I, I I went last where, well, sorry, I went to Gothenburg probably like 2014. And I remember him saying so vividly, I was like, oh, so who's your like prime minister? And he was like, uh, I don't really know. And I was like, how do you not know who's your prime minister or like who are the cabinets? He was like, well, everything kind of works fine. So why would we need to know? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good point. It's only when things don't work that people need to know who to blame. And then he was saying, the transport system, they vote every two, three years. So if a company decides to up their prices, the the, the majority uh, uh, party or the people who are the citizens won't vote for them. So then they won't have the contract. So then that makes, make, it makes sense for them to actually keep the rates at a really good level because if not, they won't get in power in two, three years' time. Yeah, it's just that we're in a curious we're, Britain is in a curious position because we're a nation of uh, investors uh, or, or want want to be investors, and so um, the fact that interest rates are up at ten percent now is is a disaster for most people. But it's actually a, it's it, it's 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 a, a wonderful opportunity for people who have cash in the bank, and 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 that's a small number of people, but they tend to be swing voters in the UK, and they definitely tend to be the people that might be choosing, for example between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. And, and so they have different motivations to the general population. Um, most people see 10% interest rates as a bad thing. But if you've got investments, then then, then this is a, an opportunity to make a killing. Mm, this is so true. I mean, I'm, I'm, fasc I'm fascinated with how it's all going to play out in the near future. And then obviously we have like recession potentially. I mean, the, there's theories of it happening, but there's also hype around it as well. Like I, I heard from... One of my friends who's a banker, he said, if someone believes there's going to be a recession, they will do it. And another company will see that person doing it. And then someone else will see that person. And suddenly there is a recession because everyone's panicking about recession. And the same thing about electricity. My dad, my parents don't even use their oven no more like because they because they want to save money and they wouldn't use an air fryer but like i assume more, more people are doing that nowadays they're really really conservative and really like making sure that they're only using what they actually need because it's so expensive yeah and and i think i think that um everybody will be uh, forced to think about their energy consumption this winter everybody will be Mm. Um, we're doing the same right and 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 i think if we're doing it then a lot more people are doing it than than, than, than just me um yeah. and and this is just because of market forces it's not because uh consuming energy is 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 a bad thing to do when the source of that energy is finite 
Um, mm. So I think we're moving into a situation where, um, you know, one of the ways to get out of um, uh, producing uh, CO2 is to, to actually use less energy. So we're going to move into a situation where, where, where that benefits um, efforts to reduce global warming inadvertently. And, and, you know, you know other, other examples exist like that. Margaret Thatcher closed down the coal mines in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. That, that inadvertently, and she did that for economic reasons, inadvertently that led to the UK becoming um, uh, the leading um, user of uh, renewable energy, electricity, and so we're we're at the forefront of renew, renew, renewable energy use thanks to Margaret Thatcher. Good old Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> well, but, but all the bad she did, she indirectly uh, led yeah. us onto the path of renewables. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same thing about bad and good. Like with COVID, I went obviously no one was no one was driving anywhere, so there was no there was no like carbon dioxide and all that sort of like stuff going into the and, and terrible stuff from the cars going out into the into the atmosphere so yeah. then things cleared up and, and then everyone... the same with planes right when we had the volcanic eruption in iceland and also with the uh twin towers crash um terrorist attacks in america when planes go down you notice the difference oh yeah uh, in, totally. uh, associated with air traffic yeah, I wonder, I wonder, I mean, maybe you could give me a theory, but what do you think in the next 50 to 100 years, how are we going to get like, are we going to have some sort of eco friendly energy thing, you know, like you see like utopia, and it's going to be like a, a, a society and, and a world where like, it's not really going to have harm to the to the space. The real frustrating, the the real frustration, I think, for most climate scientists is, be, is, is that the, 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 the technology uh, required to solve climate change is actually quite um, primitive. We just need to use uh, rene the renewable energy sources that have existed and we've known about for a long time, solar and wind. We need to store that somehow, but many parts of our planet already store energy potential um, through uh, hydroelectric um, reservoirs. So all you need to do is the cheapest way to store energy is to pump water to higher altitude and then let, let it come back down when you need to use it. You don't even need batteries. A reservoir is essentially a primitive form of a battery. Mm -hmm. We already have this infrastructure in most countries because we have reservoirs that we depend upon for our irrigation. And, of course, the cheapest and most natural way of absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere is to plant trees. These are all um, – these, these would all have been and, and might still be frowned upon methods because they're not terribly sophisticated but these are the methods that will get us out of um, the dependence on fossil fuels which are produced by relatively unpleasant um, uh, individuals yeah and um and and free to 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 have protected natural energy sources which i think is what most people want yeah i mean i i've been uh, a lot of with my work at the moment in time the word of carbon offsetting has been put around and stuff and so some people might know what it is but maybe you could explain further what carbon offsetting is well i think um in principle uh there's a, a method to to reach net zero uh by some people absorbing more carbon uh than they produce than they consume uh one way or another and and selling those um credits to people who consume more than they um they produce but it doesn't work in practice. So what usually um, gets uh, left out of any carbon trading schemes is 
is the uh, energy that's required to, to to move goods around the planet, for instance. And so, you really uh, to be uh, to be carbon neutral, um, people have to become more self-sufficient and, and produce energy, essentially produce energy locally. And that will be different depending on where you are on the planet. And if you're around the tropics, you'll lose. And if you're in where, where you live in California, you've got an abundance of sun. Yeah. Um, and in, in other parts of the world, you've got an abundance of wind. And so every country is going to have to, unless you want to sell the electricity produced in the north from wind to the tropics, uh, when it's no longer sunny and, and vice versa, you're going to have to develop ways of storing the energy so that there's a continuous supply um, mm-hmm. during times of demand. And that that w- might be by um, um, chemical batteries or it might be by natural batteries like reservoirs. But it, it is quite funny, though, when you think of like I know a lot of fashion companies um, and food companies, etc. They'll be like, oh, uh, or, or art companies, etc. They'll be like, oh, we're definitely sustainable. Uh, we're definitely eco-friendly. Um, and it's all made in house, and then they fly it all over the world, and you're like, "Well, how can you be sustainable then?" I mean, yeah, yeah, ma- yeah. It's made probably like from the land, or it's from like made. Everything's made there, but then you ship it all over the world. So then, how is that sustainable? Yeah, and the, with fashion, of course, and it's all, the same with all consumer goods uh, to some extent, but in fashion in particular, you, you can't um take responsibility for the lifetime of the garment you've produced so you don't know what's going to happen to it next and mm. you know somebody might sell it on ebay to somebody else um in the states right and so that's the, the, the total lifetime carbon footprint of a garment is impossible to for, for any individual producer of that garment to quantify they don't know how many times it's going to be moved around the planet mm-hmm. and how many times it's going to be worn um but i don't think people will respond we won't get to solving uh, climate change by restricting people's lifestyles. We have to find ways um, to produce energy naturally and renewably so that people can use energy without any um, guilt, right? And people can consume things without guilt because that's that's what people want to do. Mm, I, I wonder, because obviously, I don't, I don't know if you've heard about this technology blockchain, but I wonder if this is me just spitballing ideas. But I wondered if if you had a QR code and you had a, some shoes that are from I don't know Iceland or from I don't know Australia, wherever it is, right? And then they had a QR code, and so then obviously they would sell them to the consumer, and they would have like a QR code and a blockchain, so you could follow it. And then upon that purchase, which usually happens, is that either like a, a it goes portion of it goes to a, um, growing a tree or planting a tree, or it could be a carbon credit, which the consumer can spend on charities or whatever. But I wonder, as you're saying, if that that product moves around constantly, which is out outside of the the ownership of the company, I wonder if this blockchain technology can can detect and also help climate and and sustainability but as as every time it moves something good happens from that so whether it is like the tree uh, 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 well the simplest thing is obviously a tree being planted which i'm sure you can do more than that but i wonder if that could help because obviously then it's not also the responsibility of the the ownership of the company originally because they obviously as you said they can't they can't track how it's going to move but i wondered within blockchain itself that that technology can help like limit and reduce the sort of like carbon footprint that happens. So something good's happening as well as the, even if it is moving around. 
Well, it happens with art. So art that's purchased today, um, the artist premium um, is applied to all sales, and an artist today will will make money on every sale of their artwork, uh, whether it's sold on. So in some sectors, um, the tax is, is applied for the lifetime of the object, and art's one of them. Uh, but of course, in other sectors, it's not. And, and I think that that's, um, that's thanks to capitalism, rampant capitalism, and uh, the, the, the business model that many um, um, companies are based upon is not sustainable if you factor into their product the lifetime bill associated with the things that they might sell. And and it, and it's the it, it it it's the cleanup costs, right? It's essentially the cleanup costs of, of whatever it is they're selling. They're only they're only paying for the first time it gets it gets bought by somebody else, and not um, the the subsequent lifetime of their product. And it's it and and that's why um, we 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 are unsustainable uh, because the price of a good that you buy doesn't include the lifetime costs. Um, that that it has on the environment. If it did, people would consume less, far less. We wouldn't have the fast fashion that we have today. But I wonder if there's a business model like in art that would happen in fashion and then that company would do very, very well because then people would notice a bit more and then people would invest in that company. Yeah, but the problem is is that um, um, art is a fairly unique and low volume activity, uh, whereas fashion, you know, is many many orders of magnitude greater in mm. terms of its volume, and it's not traceable. I think the problem is, is what what really needs to happen is 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 um, carbon taxes need to be applied to all goods based upon an agreed um, um, average level of impact uh, that the goods from whatever sector of society might have, and electronic goods is a good example. Um, they have a they have a significant lifetime impact, and and indeed most most uh, producers of electronic items work on a, a lifetime of twelve to twenty four months for their objects, mm. but they stay in they stay in circulation for longer than that. They just want people to to dispose of them quickly so they can buy new ones, and if and if they had to factor in uh, the lifetime costs of um, the the impact that those devices had on the environment. Uh, they couldn't expect people to buy them uh, as frequently because they'd be twice the price at the initial sale. Mm. So many things we need to solve. So many things. Um, so as we round up this episode, um, what I lo- always love to do with my guests, and we, and we do this compilation at the end, and we we um, record uh, a, a new podcast, and basically it asks our guest, well, we ask our guests, what would be the give back you would give to yourself or someone listening that maybe has inspired you it could be a book it could be a quote it could be a mantra it could be a person and what we do at the end at the end of the year we put all these together so there's about like i don't know uh we do four four week uh about 80 or 60 of these little pieces nuggets of information what would you give back to someone that's potentially listening um i i think the, the the mantra that I've always uh, worked to is is that you, you you should try to have fun in your work, and uh, science can be really fun at times. The area that I've worked in has become increasingly um, less uh, fun because we're selling continuously a bad news story, and it's really hard uh, to 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 continue 
to enjoy what you're doing when you're delivering bad news. Yeah. Uh, but you've still got to find a way to do that. You've got to try. It's like it's like medics and and, and uh, other people. You have to desensitize yourself to that stuff because you 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 definitely make the most important achievements, the most rapid progress when you're enjoying uh, your work. I wonder how traffic officers um, enjoy their job when they have they to give must tickets. Be away. <laughs> they I've, must always, be away. I've always wondered it. They always give. They literally Los Angeles and, and California. They they love giving tickets. Like it's it's known. Like you can leave your five, car for five minutes and suddenly you've got a ticket. Right? They they love it because the the uh, the government or the, the county or whatever it is love making money from Los Angeles people. So um, there's always a, a, a ticket war, warden somewhere. And I've always wondered, I was like, I wonder how much fun their job is. Do they do they enjoy it? I don't even know. But yeah, I think you've got to find fun in your job as well, because then what's the point of doing it? It really is. Well, anyway, I want to say thank you so much for coming on 360 Yourself. You've been 360'd. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to our awesome guests. Please subscribe to our podcast to access all our astonishing episodes released every Sunday, 12 p.m. We are available on all listening platforms, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram for more discussions, education, and inspiration at 360 underscore yourself. The host, that's me, Jamie Neal, on Instagram at Jamie Neal JN. And once again, thank you for listening, and remember to 360 yourself. <laughs>